on Textbooked. You're listening to Untextbooked. This is a history podcast for the future that gives young people like us a voice and agency in our education. I'm your host, Gabe Hostin. And I'm producer Oliver Wang. So Oliver, where are you recording from today? Funny story, I'm actually in the back of a pickup truck in Hawaii, and this is my layover before I go study abroad in South Africa in the fall. Are we talking about study abroad this episode? As fun as that sounds, no. This episode is all about venture capital. It's something that feels distant or irrelevant to our lives sometimes, but really we use products fueled by venture capital every day. And so I wanted to start off with a quick survey. When was the last time you took an Uber? Well, I normally use my electric skateboard, so it's been about a week or two. And what about the last time you opened Instagram? An hour ago. Have you ever asked ChatGPT a question? Of course. How did I do on your survey? I'd say you passed. Well, the point is, all of these products and services are results of venture capital. There's so much more, too. The Moderna COVID vaccine, synthetic insulin, ChatGPT, driverless cars, plus countless other innovations we use in our everyday lives. We're talking to each other on a digital platform right now. I'm in London, you're in the US, and we can communicate. Yes, you heard that right. Even this very podcast was recorded on technology fueled by venture capital. I'm speaking with Sebastian Malaby. He's a journalist, two-time Pulitzer finalist, and a senior fellow for economics on the Council of Foreign Relations. So are you saying that venture capitalists essentially run the world? Well, I don't know about running the world, but Sebastian argues that venture capital contributes more innovation to the modern world than any other entity like the government or academia. He predicts that venture capital will continue doing so into the future, and he's captured all of this in his book named The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Making of the New Future. I think a lot of people, especially young people, think of venture capital as an esoteric, somewhat elitist entity. However, our modern technical world would not exist as we know it without venture capital. And so I think it's worth investigating and understanding. Hi, Mr. Malaby. How's it going? Hi, nice to meet you. You can call me Sebastian and I'm going to call you Oliver. Cool. Perfect. <laughs> Your book is extremely, extremely detailed up to the point where you literally like know what these figures are having for breakfast. And so I was just wondering what went into writing this book. I've written five books and um, most of them have taken me around about four or five years to do. So the answer to the question is that I get all the detail because I'm just spending insane amounts of time tracking down everything to justify adding to, you know, another book on the shelf, you really better write a good book. So I'm obsessive about learning everything I possibly can, interviewing all the people who might be relevant. Sometimes it takes six months to persuade one of these people to make the time to sit down with me for a couple of hours. I, I wait until they say yes. Let's back up. What is venture capital? So venture capital is the sort of financial specialty that takes equity positions, buys shares in, you could say, in growth companies at the very early stages. They're typically 
technologically driven. So the first venture capital investment started almost 70 years ago, in 1957. The United States is in the boom period after World War II. A postage stamp cost three pennies. Sputnik was just released into orbit. And there were some disgruntled scientists with a jerk of a boss. Picture the scene in 1957, the typical American technology worker, an engineer or whatever, had the mentality that you probably joined one company and stayed there your whole career and retired when you turned 60 with a gold watch and, and kind of that would be your career. Goodbye. And so rather scandalously, this group of talented engineers decided that although their boss, William Shockley, had a Nobel Prize and was a, definitely a genius, he was so awful to work for, so abusive and condescending, that they just had to get out of there. Their thought was, you know, we can't start our own company, nobody does that, nobody's ever heard of that, but we could maybe get rehired as a team of scientists by another engineering company and continue to work together as a team, because we like that, but just not have this disastrously bullying boss breathing down our necks all the time. These scientists became known as the Traitorous Eight. Wow, that's intense. So you're saying side hustle culture didn't exist in the 1950s? Why were they called traitors, not entrepreneurs? Bosses expected loyalty from their employees. They were bucking the social norms. I always like to tell people that the classic business book of the 1950s was called Organization Man precisely depicting this idea that, you know, loyalty to your employer was, was part of the deal, and they were breaking this. So they wrote a letter explaining what they were hoping to do to the connections that they had in the world of New York City finance. The letter was passed around. It was passed on to a young guy called Arthur Rock, and Rock immediately flew out to California to meet with these engineers and said, look, start your own company. Then you get to own a chunk of the company that you're creating. And if you do well, because you worked hard and you had great ideas, you get to keep a stake in it yourself. Again, this is a really different way to think back in the 1950s. And for Rock, this was kind of a, a social justice thing in a way, right? Why should the capitalists get all the money when the creators of the ideas, the engineers who actually had the you know genius insights, shouldn't they be cut in on the deal? And so Rock, who came from a a poor background and had had a tough childhood, bullied at school, kind of the one Jewish kid in the class. He didn't really like the establishment. And one of his ways of getting back at the establishment was to distribute the proceeds of scientific invention to the scientists and away from the, the owners of capital. And so that's how it went down. Rock went off and raised capital and the group of scientists, eight of them, set up Fairchild Semiconductor. Yeah, and so the big bet the Traitorous Eight took finally paid off. Literally paid off. <laughs> yeah, literally. This time, it wasn't just the boss at the top of the company making the money. That money was spread around across all of the founders. What about Arthur, the investor? Yep, and he was making money off his investment too. <laughs> the company is called Fairchild Semiconductor. Never heard of it. One thing and another happened, and it ended up that Gordon Moore and Robert Noyce, two of the most prominent founders uh, of this Fairchild Semiconductor, went on to found another company, Intel. Okay, Intel. 
That's pretty big. Actually, you can trace the origins of more than 90 companies back to Fairchild Semiconductor. You could call Apple or Google Fairchild's great-grandkid. These eight founders were prominent figures in the early days of California's tech sector, but there's one person who's been kind of written out of history. But nobody had really heard of Arthur Rock very much until I wrote my book. And it struck me that the person who had the idea for setting up your own company, who kind of made it happen by raising the capital, who had the idea of writing a stock option plan that would spread the proceeds to everybody who was among the early employees in the company, that Arthur Rock deserves some credit. So part of what I've done in my book is to write a kind of shadow history of Silicon Valley. Sounds like a perfect fit for Untextbooked, you know, because we're all about covering the overlooked parts of history. Yeah, absolutely. I also wanted to call out that Sebastian called Arthur's investment liberation capital. And I thought this was a pretty cool term since it allowed these scientists to start their own company for the first time. And this was such a novel idea. Liberation capital refers to this idea that without venture capital in the picture, you know, the traitorous eight might have been just stuck working for the tyrannical Shockley. They wouldn't have had an option. And so they were liberated from that difficult situation to set up their own company by venture capital. I can see how liberation capital could feel like freedom to those scientists. So that's the story of how venture capital came into existence in the early days of California's iconic Silicon Valley. Now, there's about 3,000 venture capital firms in the United States managing about $995 billion in assets. Now, why is venture capital so unique? And what I want to know is, what about venture capital inspires all these different innovations, from Intel to the internet? So we mentioned that the Traitorous 8 received a stake in the success of Fairchild Semiconductor, right? And that's what we call equity. They can share the profits when the company makes money. Another unique thing is risk. Venture capital also funds riskier companies and gives them a shot at success. One of the striking things about venture capital is that it's not your typical finance thing where basically you're thinking just about allocating money. It's also a hands-on company building discipline and venture capitalists are very much involved rolling up their sleeves and helping the company get started in the first year or two. Everybody is incentivized by having a piece of the action if the thing works, which of course makes everybody work very hard to make it succeed, which is kind of crucial when you're talking about a startup where the odds of success are pretty low because it's very hard to launch a new company and compete with the incumbents in your sector. Once you have equity or shares of a startup, you can't sell like you could on the public stock exchange. No, you're stuck. So what you do to manage your risk, since you can't exit, is instead of exit, you have voice, meaning you go on the board of the company and if you think the company is being managed in a way that's going to drive it off a cliff, you express that view. And you may firmly suggest that they might want to consider a different path. And that's where being an experienced company builder as a venture capitalist, somebody who's been around the block, who has funded you know, 10, 15, 20 other startups before and kind of knows how things go down, that advice from the experienced investor to the you know, determined, driven, and brilliant entrepreneur who doesn't have the same experience. That's a kind of yin-yang combination of skills that can be super powerful. 
And I think if there's one central message in my book, it's that this combination of the networks and experience that venture capitalists bring, together with the drive and brilliance of the company entrepreneurs, that's the combination that makes Silicon Valley happen. And that's the combination that's now being spread around the world as other geographies try to imitate Silicon Valley. Right. And so despite this combination, you mentioned that the vast, vast majority of VC-backed businesses fail. Wait, Oliver, is that true? The vast majority of VC-backed businesses fail? Why? It's true. If something is truly innovative, it just might not work out. We hear about the successes of Facebook, Instagram, Uber, and PayPal, but failures like WeWork or MoviePass are way more common than you'd think. The name of your book, basically, The Power Law. Can you kind of explain what that is? Most investors who invest in the stock market, for example, would be appalled if they bought 100 shares of IBM and literally went to zero, like IBM just went bankrupt the next week. In the world of startups, you know, startups are inherently fragile, and they often go to zero. In fact, it's quite normal if a venture capitalist makes 10 investments to find that seven or eight of these may fail and the venture capitalist gets precisely zero dollars back on the original investment. And so the only reason why venture capital investment is kind of viable from a sort of financial perspective is that you have a few outlier bets that are going to make more than 10 times the original investment. So let's think about the portfolio with 10 bets. Let's say eight go to zero. If the last two both go to 10x, the first 10x is basically recouping the value of the original 10 investments. And the second 10x is doubling the total value of the fund. And so you're able to go back to your backers, the limited partners who've put money into the venture capital fund and say, okay, I earned you a return. I've doubled your money over seven or eight years. If you think about any of the famous stories, whether it's Facebook or Apple or you know Netscape in the 1990s or Google or whatever, I mean, these were sort of more like you know 100x or higher than that. So it's very much a game where the occasional grand slam makes up for all the times you went and struck out. Okay. I find it so fascinating because it's so different from like the founding fathers of investing, whether it be like Warren Buffett or Benjamin Graham, his teacher, who really preached that you need to invest in a business with like steady revenues, recurring dividends, that sort of thing. And so I'm just wondering how in the world that these people get comfortable with investing in these growth stage companies, sometimes with zero or negative revenues? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer is that it it was a big leap of imagination to get comfortable with that, which is why people hadn't really done venture capital until the 1950s. But I think once Arthur Rock did it and showed that you know Fairchild made a great return and then Intel made an even greater return, and along the way there were a couple of other big hits he had in the 1960s, There was Scientific Data Systems, which was a computer company that sold for almost a billion dollars to Xerox in the late 60s. And he had one other one called Teledyne, which was equally amazing. So he had three or four big hits in the 50s and 60s. And when word of this leaked out, 
other investors suddenly got the idea that, ooh, yeah, this can work. If you lean in and go for the really risky propositions, which may only have a one in 10 shot at working, but if they do work, it'll be more than a one in 10 return, then you can make money this way. And that was the insight that was kind of at the center of the flourishing of the whole industry. And that's why I called my book, The Power Law. Wow. Do you have the stomach for that kind of risk? (laughs) Certainly not now, but I do see the thrill behind investing in these eccentric ideas. That said, there are some flaws in venture capital that we haven't mentioned. For one, there's the question of who gets funding and what products get funded. For example, black women founders receive less than one percentage point of all venture capital funding, according to Crunchbase. Dang. Venture capital can also create bubbles, depending on other market shifts and federal interest rates. Tech companies, when they succeed, disrupt the incumbent companies that were doing the same thing, but in a less sort of tech-savvy, efficient way. So if you take the example of Uber, you've got traditional cab companies running around. They're not connected by an app, but you stand on the corner in New York City and wave your arm in the rain until one of them stops. And then you try to jump in the car before three other people who are also waiting, you know, elbow you out of the way and seize the car before you get into it. So that's the old model of taxis, not entirely the most efficient. And so along comes Uber and has this idea that we're going to connect people with apps that will be safer because every rider will know who the driver is and every driver will know who the rider is. So I think when Uber disrupts the traditional taxi world based on the fact that it has a better product, which is better for consumers and probably better for the drivers too. That is a good innovation and we are happy as a society to accept the disruption to the traditional business model because with that disruption, there will be pain and people will have to adjust, but it means progress because the new replacing system is more efficient. But imagine a world in which actually the disruption was being inflicted by some startup that was not more efficient, didn't have a better business model, but simply had super cheap capital. Investors are throwing money too readily at startups. And then those startups may be disrupting incumbents without really being more efficient and without having a kind of social justification for the painful disruption that they are causing. If the only innovation you have is cheap money, that's not an innovation. I argue that this is a pretty rare thing, right? I mean, you know, Uber at some points, they were receiving money from investors on stupidly free terms. I mean, too much money with too little demand from the investors that some kind of financial return had to be realized. So what that means is that, you know, Uber gets all this cash from investors, It doesn't have to make a profit. So every time some rider was getting in a car in San Francisco or New York or wherever, one quarter of that ride was being paid for by a venture capitalist who didn't mind not being given a return on the investment. I mean, that's kind of unfair competition. But, you know, at the core of Uber, there was this innovation that I described earlier about using an app. And so I think it's, for the most part, not the case that so much free money is running around that the disruption is unjustified. But it can be the case in you know, particular moments in tech history when there is a huge bubble. This past year, we saw the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic Bank, and a bunch of others. 
This is the perfect example of a bubble. Throughout the past few years, investors have been way too eager to throw their money at businesses. And so at the first sign of trouble with rising interest rates, they pulled their deposits out of the banks, causing a chain of bank failures. So I wanted to shift a little bit to um, the geopolitical aspect of your book. A big part of it is dedicated to China and venture capital development in China. And so how was that replicated in China? And you mentioned that, you know, whoever has the innovation hub of the world is likely to sort of maintain the top spot in global politics and power. And I was just wondering if you see any implications for the future, for geopolitics, or any conflicts that you see coming up? Sure. I do think that national power has always been strongly connected to technology. And whatever phase of history you care to mention, whether it's the invention of gunpowder or the invention of aircraft for fighting in the 20th century, the creation of nuclear weapons, long-range missiles, more recently drones, which are very important in the Ukraine conflict, all through the story, technology is really important. So if we're looking at the China tech sector and see that between about 2005 and 2020, it exploded in success and importance and was able to spawn these companies like Alibaba and Tencent and Baidu, which were really sort of state-of-the-art tech innovation providers. I think that's a big part of why China is a powerful country today. So I think, you know, venture capital is part of what builds national power. I think the tables have turned slightly in the last couple of years, partly because China clamped down on its own domestic technology sector. The government chased Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, into exile for a while. If you want people to try to become tycoons by building tech companies, and then persecute the ones who have made it. That's not a very good signal to send in terms of fostering the next generation of tech startups. I definitely agree with the basic point of the question, which is whoever wins in terms of national power will win because of technology, and that technology will be partly created by venture capital. We talked about where venture capital came from and its impact on our whole globe. What do we as young people need to know about the future of venture capital? Good question. I asked Sebastian how he sees this type of financing evolving into the future. The biggest evolution is going to be that it spreads geographically. You see the rise of technology hubs in China. You see quite a lot of success in Southeast Asia. You see some in India. It's spreading to Europe. And within the US, there's a bunch of other centers, Miami, Austin, Texas, and so forth where venture is spreading to. So I think the biggest shift over the next 10 years is going to be that more and more different places in the world get their own version of Silicon Valley. If you just take Europe as an illustration, there are actually more software engineers in the European Union than there are in the United States. It's a bigger market, you know, just measured by GDP. There's, there's more spending power in Europe than in the US. There are more people. It's got a bigger population than the US. Why did Europe not have a vibrant startup ecosystem? It had the engineers, it had the market, it had the wealth. It didn't have the startup ecosystem because there were no venture capitalists. That's changing, right? VCs now do operate in Europe. And so the missing ingredient in having a Silicon Valley type ecosystem 
is being addressed. And so you do have companies like Spotify that come out of Europe and that conquer the world. And I think that's what we're going to see more of. Awesome. That's the interview. Okay. <laughs> terrific. Thank you, Oliver. That's fun. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Good luck. That was Sebastian Malaby. His most recent book is The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Making of the New Future. He's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Big thanks to Sebastian for joining us on this week's episode of Untextbooked. So we covered a lot of history. Liberation Capital, The Traitorous Eight, Disruptive Tech, Silicon Valley, and Global Changes. So Oliver, should I try to get venture capital funding for my startups and ventures? What about for the nonprofit I run Ivy League Mentoring? It's a super simple idea. We connect mentors from the Ivy League to disadvantaged high school students. Wow, Gabe, that's a really cool idea. And I would really encourage you to reach out to some venture capitalists. I think one of the main points of this episode with Sebastian was just to prove that venture capital isn't necessarily just for the elite, but it's accessible to actually anyone with a good idea. Thank you so much for the encouragement, Oliver. That's all for this episode of Untextbooked. I'm producer Oliver Wang. And I'm Gabe Hostin. Hit the follow button so you get new episodes automatically in your podcast feed. Find us on Instagram at Untextbooked and discover more resources at untextbooked.com. If you like this show, please leave us a review. Special shout out to one listener who wrote, I love this podcast and the people hosting it. Well, I just have to say that we also love our listeners. And thank you so much for listening and writing that awesome review. Thanks to the History Collab, Fernanda Rain, and Cece Payne. Untextbook is produced by Pod People. Rachel King, Amy Machado, Danielle Roth, Hannah Pedersen, Michael Aquino, and Shay Woditz. Mm-hmm.